0: Today's episode is not only one of our best yet, but it's also a timely one. Our co-host for this episode is an accomplished cardiologist, and at time of this being uploaded, we're in the midst of May. We are coming off of Nurses Week. We are in the midst of celebrating the healthcare workers in our country, which are really taking care of all of us, and May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. So all those factors together make this episode a really meaningful one for this time, and it's a really quality one. With all due respect to my co-host, I was even a bit surprised of how awesome it was. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got some insight into getting into the medical world, some behind the scenes, and what it takes to actually get to that finish line of becoming a healthcare worker on many different levels. It's got a bunch of different stories, both serious ones and funny ones. It's educational. It's entertaining. So I really think that anyone listening can benefit from it. It was so good that it wound up being split into two episodes because we just couldn't stop and there was so much there. So if you enjoy, and I hope you do, please subscribe. Please consider reviewing and rating and sharing and all that good stuff. This is Mental Filter welcome back everybody to another episode of mental filter where we talk about anything and everything under the sun all through the lens of mental health with mental health professionals, other professionals, other interesting and cool people. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and run a specialized therapy practice a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. We will get into today's topic in just a moment. Before that, I would like to segue into today's co-host. His name is Dr. Daniel Ambender. He is a cardiology fellow, a cardiologist, And I'm really looking forward to this talk because I know Daniel, and he has a lot of experience. He has a wealth of knowledge. He is entertaining to listen to, and he has plenty to share. So I will allow him to let you know who he is. Without further ado, Daniel, please introduce yourself.
1: Well, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. I've been listening to every episode since episode number one. I found your COVID-related short episode very calming and soothing. And uh, yeah, just a big fan. I uh, grew up in New York and I basically uh, came down to Baltimore. This is where how I ended up here. I, I attended medical school at University of Maryland, did my internal medicine residency at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, where I stayed on for cardiology fellowship, about to finish that in three months, where I will be continuing on with an advanced fellowship in interventional and structural cardiology. I love teaching, I love medical education, and I love podcasting. I think it's a really great medium for us to transfer any educational pearl that we can impart to the world. And so I'm really excited to be here and also excited to see what you've been doing over the last couple months.
0: Thank you for being here. And I couldn't agree more. So first of all, congratulations. Oh, thank you. You know, I was remiss, I didn't mention, and please tell everyone because I've had the pleasure and enjoyment of listening to your podcast, which I believe is such an instrumental and invaluable tool and resource for the community can you can you tell everyone a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, absolutely so uh so a couple months ago, three friends and I decided to start a
1: podcast. my co-hosts are Ammic oil. Heather Kagan, and Corinne Hamo, and we basically put together this cute little podcast called Cardio Nerds. Since then, since about December, we've kind of exploded in terms of the content and just meeting the demand of the medical education, especially in the COVID era. We've put out around 25 episodes and- We have around 80,000 downloads. We're really excited to be reaching people all over the world. And it's just such an exciting platform to bring cardiovascular experts that we have the privilege of being connected to from the hospital institutions that we work at to everybody around the world for free. We also have launched this website. And in the COVID era, we've basically developed a COVID hub where we've basically kind of taken the best of the best of what we think is great high yield educational content and built up this webpage that includes is tutorials, episodes of the podcast, as well as YouTube videos, so just a bunch of great medical related content so that people can kind of sift through these things and reacquaint themselves with the positions that they're going to need, you know, as they go forward, as everybody is totally turned upside down because of this pandemic.
0: Right. And that's such a beautiful thing. If there's anything that we're learning through COVID is how, while on one hand, we could be separated, but on the other hand, we're so connected. And we can really, really help people out, even from a distance. And technology has been just instrumental in that, tremendously invaluable. So I think you're doing a public service. You and your co-host are doing a public service that is just beyond. It's it, it's amazing. And I can tell people who are listening to check it out because you know when you hear about something that's Educational or medical, you might think that it's you know dry and technical, and it's really not. It's really very relatable, and for lots of people out there, it's very very relevant, uh, especially in, in this time. But even beyond COVID, it is very relevant. So thank you for that, and I hope people will go check it out. So let's introduce our topic of the day and and why I asked Daniel to come on to talk. You know, at all the topics that we've addressed, and it's really diverse. We pick different either professions or experiences or events and really try to take a look at it through the lens of the mental skills or the mental health the whole experience everything has a mental health aspect to it so being a cardiologist and being someone who's getting more and more experience with internal medicine and is out there on the front lines and especially now with covid so i re- i asked daniel to come on if we so we can talk about the journey through the medical field, going through the whole medical school process, the perseverance and the resilience and the persistence it takes to get through the whole process. And then what people don't really get to see, and I'm glad now actually people get to get some looks behind the front lines and what people, what healthcare workers are dealing with and working with on the front lines. And I'm glad that people get that exposure. But for a, doctor for a cardiologist for a someone who's in internal medicine to give an idea to people to people listening of what it's like from a mental perspective day in day out being a medical professional so that's the long-winded introduction to our topic which i think is a very interesting topic and it's very relevant and i know that in my practice i've seen plenty of medical professionals and researchers there's there's a lot of intensity there So let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Yeah,
1: I think, Shmuel, I think this is like a really, really important conversation to have, especially when it comes to medical professionals and their training. There are many different medical fields. Uh, I happen to be a medical doctor, but there are also so many other medical fields that have similar and different experiences in terms of mental health and progression through their career. I know that, you know, the the medical training in general has many different different uh, stages. And each stage is accompanied by its own challenges from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. So I'll, for your audience, I'll just describe kind of the training that I've gone through and a few different things that I've noticed along the way, medical training, and and as in terms of issues that can come up and arise and stresses that are put on the medical trainee, and then kind of maybe talk about different ways that kind of I, I, I have worked through them personally over the years. And obviously, knowing that, that is not something that could be applied to everybody, but just these
0: are kind of the things that I've kind of worked through it, worked through over time. So, what I've learned by doing these episodes with people, the more and more I talk to people, I realize that the more that applies to everybody. It's so interesting how, no matter the profession, the certain skills or the challenges, they might look a different color, but they actually are quite similar. Under, underneath it all, there is a theme in different professions and different experiences. And we're really not all that different. And so many of our experiences are similar in the sense of the theme of challenges, although it looks very different. Now, quick story before you get into your, your experience and your lessons that you've learned through that is that I actually thought about going to medical school pretty strongly back in the day. And when I was uh, going to college and figuring out what I what I am interested in and what I wanted to do, I did strongly consider going to medical school and looked into pre-med programs. And then I quickly realized that I like the idea of being a doctor and I like the idea of, you know, the white coat and helping people and being on the front lines. But then I, I quickly realized that you have to really, really want to do this and put in the work and accept all the challenges and adversities that come with it. It's not all peaches and cream. Now, the irony is, is that I still have people calling me doctor all the time, even though I'm not a doctor, but that was my little experience of even thinking about entering the medical field. So with that, I'll allow you to share some of your own experiences.
1: No, that's great, Shmuel, and I have to say, the, the work that you're doing with people is really truly accomplishing very similar things that you and I do. I may be focused on their hearts, but your focus on the mind is just so important we already know for so many different reasons beyond health, but just so people go through life and love life more each day and be able to cope with things that they were having trouble coping with without your guidance would really be not the the life worth living that they initially intended. And so I applaud you of the career choice that you've done. And like I said, I've been a fan of your show and I know your work and I really could say that, that this is a critical thing that needs to happen. Just let me describe the medical training that I had to do in order to get to where I am now. So there's the pre-med area where you're basically taking the prerequisite courses to get into medical school. That's going to be the prerequisite college courses, finally topped off with the MCAT exam, which is a very stressful exam. After this, you, you get, you apply to medical school and you get into medical school. There's four years of medical school where you go through two years of schoolwork and then two years of kind of on the go training in the hospital wards. And then there's residency after that. So for internal medicine, that's a three-year residency where you're basically under a tutelage of a bunch of seasoned physicians called attendings who train you Mm -hmm. through the process and you get graduated responsibilities after which if you want to be an internal medicine doctor, a general practitioner, or a hospitalist, you can stop then and go into practice. But if you want to pursue another subspecialty within the field of medicine, that's called a fellowship. And so I did that. And so that would be three years of cardiology fellowship for me. And- I will be doing two more years of fellowship in advanced cardiology training. Each part of this has its own different kind of makeup of struggles that you can have or challenges that you could have from a mental a mental clarity standpoint. I'll just note a few of them just to get, highlight different steps. So the pre-med route, you obviously are getting used to taking college courses and you're basically putting together your application. You're trying to do everything you can to make sure you look really polished, and that itself is uh, transition, but the MCAT is a very challenging test that, you know, it really seems that certain people have an easier time with it, others have a harder time with it, and it doesn't necessarily reflect on how you're going to be doing in medical school or how you've done in college. And that is kind of a, a gatekeeper test. So there's a tremendous amount of stress with regards to preparing for it and even taking it. And, you know, I don't have panic disorder, but for some reason, these big tests when I hyped myself up for them or in the past, when I used to hype myself up for them and say, this is the most important test ever in my entire life, it would kind of backfire and I would get kind of like panic attacks during these exams, not, not during any other time, but just the sweats and the, the sympathetic drive and the heartbeat. And so definitely a crippling anxiety. And even during these exams, I would like figure out that I just need to like totally relax. I need to kick off my shoes. I need to undo my belt. I need to unbutton my shirt. And then relax and just lean back. And that's sort of kind of helped with that
0: type of anxiety. You said so much already. So let me just jump in just for a second here, because I actually had a client who the MCATs actually brought up severe, severe anxiety and was getting stuck in trying to prepare and the doubts of questioning, am I really retaining it, the information? And it ended up, even though this person was quite bright, they kept on getting stuck in their preparation and it took an inordinate amount of time, even, even for someone who was preparing for medical school and for the MCATs and was getting stuck. So it brought it on. So I have a real life experience with the MCATs bringing it on. And another thing that you mentioned, how is this really reflective of how you're going to do, which speaks to along all the stops along the way, which you're going to describe it really taps into different types of skills and different types of challenges. So even if I am adept at managing one type of challenge, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to manage a different type of challenge, which I think anybody listening can relate to just because I'm skilled in this doesn't mean that I'm going to be successful in this. And so we constantly have to adapt and it's, it makes it even more challenging that it's not a consistent type of challenge. And one mindset that I can imagine someone getting into let's say, speaking to the MCATs, like you just said, it's not necessarily reflective of how I'm going to do. So I can have a mindset, well, this is not really fair. And now I have to spend all this time preparing. It almost reminds me of, uh, you know, in middle school or elementary school, or even high school, where people are saying, oh, this is so stupid. I don't need to know trigonometry or whatever it is, right? It's not so applicable. So if I'm studying I don't know why that sounds like a high school kid, but I think I've said that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs>
1: pre-pubescent high school kid,
0: right? Or a uh, post-pubescent so high school kid. This is not so realistic. It's not fair. If we get stuck in that, oh, this is not fair. I should not have to do all this preparing for something that is not reflective of how I'm going to do a medical school. That's going to be a stumbling block into doing more preparing and studying if I have that frame of mind. I'm curious, like, how you approach that. That helped you persist and go on through so for the mcat specifically
1: i think i had taken some advice to the extreme that was actually harmful in my preparation for it there was actually a podcast back in the day that kind of went through all of the fun it went through all like the things that you would need to know for an mcat but like kind of did it in a fun cartoon way but the hosts they suggested that when you take the mcat you take it like a hunter you know you sit up you sit straight you attack the questions you look at the questions and you just you go in there with this rah-rah attitude it's time to be activated for me i think that completely backfired I, i basically so activated myself that i made myself feel like i was playing the super bowl actually as a player and that was not helpful for this type of test these types of tests require you to use your mental capacity to the fullest you have to be calm you have to be reserved and you have to be thinking and you also should not be taking the test thinking about the consequences of the test. It's not helpful. The consequences of the test and sitting up and sitting forward and all of that really helps with the preparation of the test. But when you're actually taking the test, you have to look at the test and say, okay, nothing else matters. I'm gonna take this test and I'm gonna have fun with it. Now, fast forward. In medical school, you need to take two sets of boards. Step one, step two. And then after medical school, you need to take step three. So now it's step one and I've prepared, and I'm excited for it, and I get to step one. And it's, it's a very important test because it can help determine what kind of residency or where you go for residency, similar the type of stress as the MCAT. And I have the same thing. I fall for it again. I just have the sweats. I have to go to the bathroom. They don't let you go to the bathroom. If you go to the bathroom, you have to kind of forfeit the end of the test section. And I'm just, I'm going out of my mind. And again, I recall that episode in the MCATs where I just totally unbuckled my belt, kicked off my shoes, sat back in the recliner chair as if i was home practicing a test just so relaxed and it really helped me out the same exact thing happened for step two (laughs) the next time around but this time it did happen but it only happened for 30 seconds because i was like dan you know what you're doing stop it worked last time it's gonna work this time get over it and you gotta just move on also this idea of putting a lot of weight into one moment of time and psyching yourself up and saying that this is a critical period or procedure or task that I have to do in order to get to the next goal can be very helpful in the prep. But when you're actually in the moment, could be catastrophic and really derail you. Knowing that helps basically undo that. So I had this example with tests. But I also recently had this example uh, two years ago when I was a cardiology fellow, first year fellow, and I knew I wanted to do interventional cardiology, which is a lot of procedures. So I immediately reached out to my mentor, who's now my boss, Dr. Resar, and I, I said, hey, uh, we haven't really worked together, but I really want to do interventional cardiology. Could you put me on the list for the advanced fellowship in a couple of years? And he wrote me back. He said, Oh, that's really nice. I'm so excited that you're interested. We should definitely talk, but I can't put you on the list until I work with you. So I know that your hands are good at what we need you to be good at before we take you to the program. So I said, oh, great. That's fine. That sounds awesome. So it's a couple of weeks later and I signed myself up to be working with him so that I can basically show him that I am able to use my hands in the way that we need to be able to use them in an interventional cardiology. Everything's great. I'm super excited. I signed myself up for all the cases. And then I go in there and I, again, have this sense that this is my job interview. This is my moment. This is everything that I've done, all the years of training that I've done come down to this moment. And if I don't show him that I could do this, I'm never going to be an interventional cardiologist, which is what I wanted to be for such a long time. And got the sweats, got the aches, and we're all wearing masks. So it's hard to, you know, you have to really use your ears and listen to what people are telling you. You know, there's pedals that you have to use and a lot of wires and everything like that. And I'm just like looking, I'm getting confused and I'm slow and I'm obviously the patient's safe because this is uh, not patient related. It's more of just the, the tool work. And he's obviously guiding me through everything that I should be doing. But just this anxiety that I had, this sense of total anxiety was almost paralyzing. And then again, I said, you know, I couldn't kick off my shoes or open my belt, but I just looked at myself and I said, Dan, get a grip get a grip. It's not the one moment. It's going to be fine. Whatever you do now is going to be fine. And he sensed that I was having a lot of anxiety. And after the case, I went over to him and I actually, I'm a pretty open book. And I said, Dr. Risa, I just want you to know, next case is going to be better. I was just totally off the anxiety curve and I'm ready to get back on. And he was like, Dan, you're amazing. Just get back on. And Sure enough, the next case was awesome and he gave me the job and everything's worked out and we're very excited. But it was the same type of idea of just this, this like, this is the moment. And if I don't accomplish task A, I'm never going to get to B. And that for some reason, for me, when I'm in the actual task A is not helpful. It's just harmful.
0: So yeah, it was really, really helpful. Couldn't have said it better myself. I want for the people listening, I want to highlight a couple of the things that you said and connect them to maybe experiences that people at home can really truly genuinely relate to. So number one is what you described very well is that the ability and the skill to be able to focus just on the moment and task that is right in front of me is a tremendously valuable skill no matter what we're doing. Whether it's surgery, whether you're taking a test, whether you're driving a car, whatever it is, part of what contributes to being anxious is that Everything is riding on this one thing. And there's so many other things that are not in this present moment. Sometimes I'll talk to people about putting things in two buckets, the here and now worry and the not here and now worry. And our job is to try to focus on what's the here and now worry is something that I can do something about it right now. So if I'm taking a test, let me focus on this question right now. This incision, this turn, this whatever it is, being able to try to be present is a, it take, it's not easy, it takes a lot of practice and skill, but it's invaluable, which is basically what you learned. Which ties right into the next thing that, it, and, and it's counterintuitive, because when you were in the situation again, then it pulled you right back in. I'm like, oh my gosh, everything's riding on this one. And then again, everything's riding on this one. And you kept on getting sucked in, which is not uncommon. But what happened is, is that over time, you learned from each experience and maybe the intensity either didn't get as high or it didn't last as long. You said how it came down a lot quicker the second or the third time or maybe the fourth time, whichever one it was. But we relearn our experiences in the pressure moments. I imagine people who are in a lot of high pressure moments and you've experienced so many more pressure moments since then of doing procedures or surgeries or things like that that it doesn't get that high. Why not? Because you learn that A, I can handle it. And B, it's maybe not everything is riding on on this one event. So we relearn our association with different experiences. And that's something that everyone else can relate to. Uh, In addition, everyone can relate to the, the pressure that pressure is pressure no matter what the situation. So it might've been a test, but then it's a procedure, and then it's a surgery, and then it's, doing some, then it's doing a presentation on research, let's say, or something like that. So pressure is pressure, and then it, that can apply across the board. You mentioned this very briefly, and this is something maybe they don't teach you in medical school, which is something that you realize that you have to utilize your other senses. You said how you have to depend on hearing, you have to depend on your ears, and you can't communicate. Do they address something like I imagine maybe that's something they don't address early on. And that's something that might take someone by surprise and realizing I can't communicate in the same way. Do they talk about that in training and in in school?
1: No. And uh, well, at least where I went, they did not And it's I don't know if like this is a universal thing, actually, because I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, I have a brother who's in medical school and now who's actually just graduated going into urology. And he has a very similar issue that I have. And that is when we're in the OR, or for me, the cath lab, when we're using our masks, we have a harder time understanding people than expected. The surgeons will be looking in at the field and they're doing whatever they're doing, the incision or the the stitch or whatever, and they'll be calling him to do different tasks. And he may not appreciate that they're even talking to him. You don't even know who he's talking to. He's not looking at you. So you're not, he's not looking at you and he's not looking at, and he's not, and you can't see his mouth. And so, and it's not that it's muffled per se, it's just this, this cognitive separation of what he's saying and who's he talking to is something that's out of cue. Even now we're doing the podcast and I could see the benefit of us. We actually have the video on and I could see your expressions and I could see when you want to interject and that that gives me so much unspoken information that makes the conversation so easy between us. You don't have that all the time in, in medicine and you learn and I think the way you adapt is... You need to know what's the next step. You need to know what to anticipate. So my brother, who's now becoming a very skilled surgeon on his own, is basically anticipating that, okay, the next step is me. They're going to ask me, the medical student, what I should be doing next. Like I should be retracting. He's obviously going to ask me to retract. And then when you anticipate, you can totally understand what he's saying. And same with me in the cath lab. I'm always working with people, cath lab technicians, the wonderful nursing and the attending, and I know my part, I know my role, so it becomes familiar and I can adapt. But it definitely could be a challenge, especially sometimes uh, in a noisy room where you're trying to run a code and everybody's wearing masks and you have to, you have to basically communicate. Sometimes it's can't just talk the way you were talking, you have to use your other means of talking, either not raising your voice, but just like making sure the person who you're talking to is looking at you or maybe sure make sure they're paying attention or use their names like you know that's a very important skill set to use to start using people's names when you're in these types of situations to help with the communication it goes both ways so it's interesting that you asked that and i know that there are a lot of people who never had a problem with this so i don't know if certain people do but i have a very good sense of smell a very good sense of taste and a very good sense of sight but hearing it's not that I have a lack of hearing it's just that discerning another area that I've noticed this in is lyrics like my kids could listen to a song and know all of the lyrics to a word to the, all the lyrics to the song without difficulty my wife also and me I could listen to the same song over and over and over I can have it on repeat a hundred million times if I never read the words I will I couldn't sing it again
0: right so you're saying American Idol is not in your future
1: I would say if I did American Idol, I would have to really practice the lyrics beforehand. But I could not, if you said sing any song, I could have listened to it a hundred million times before. I could have had it. I listen to songs when when I want to get in the zone, I'll put it on loop and repeat, and I'll play the same song for 12 hours while I'm working on something. And I could not read you back the lyrics at the end.
0: No way. We all have our strengths and weaknesses, Dan. (laughs) And, And this is a nuance that. You know, the regular person, like, I wouldn't have thought of this. And even going through medical school, you probably don't think about it until you are in the room. So number one, it speaks to the ability to adapt and the ability to be flexible and not freak out the first time it happens. And you mentioned about knowing what's coming. So you have to be a little bit comfortable, at least in the learning stages, of not necessarily knowing what's coming and be okay sort of sitting in that uncomfortable spot of learning and paying attention and observing to figure out what's coming. I think it would be really cool, maybe there are schools out there, they could probably teach a whole class on communication specifically for people in the medical profession. Because like you said, it's different. It's not looking face to face and talking and using hand gestures and all that and body language to communicate. So uh, that's certainly a nuance that maybe uh, the regular person might not get. There are so many other things that I want to talk to you about, and we, I'm going to apologize to people ahead of time, because I think we're going to make this one a little bit longer than typically, and you, of course, always have the power to just shut it off. <laughs> I hope you don't, because to me, this is very meaningful and very stimulating. So there's a lot of other things within the medical profession that I want to ask you about. Right before I do that, you described your whole journey up until pretty much the present. Is there research on there of the attrition rate of, like, it reminds me of a sports movie or a sports clip where, like, the coach says in college, you know, there's 100 players in this room. This percentage of you will go on to here. And then this percentage of those will go on to here. And oh or whatever is actually going to make the pros. So you got to be serious about it or don't expect blah, 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 whatever it is that the speech, how the speech goes. Is there like numbers in the attrition rate in the medical profession?
1: Yeah. So there definitely are definitely numbers. I'm not quite familiar with them, uh, but I will say that in general, broad strokes. So the attrition rate is high before medical school, but once you're in medical school, it's much lower and the majority of people graduate and most people do get residencies. Now, sometimes they may choose a very competitive residency and then that may not be the case within a subset of residencies but they'll eventually do something else. So I do I do believe that most people do end up graduating and going on to their residencies of maybe not choice but at least some residency. That's a good question.
0: So I have a question, well I have lots of questions as always. Being a cardiologist and really being in the medical profession but certain parts of the medical profession where you get exposed to certain experiences and get to see certain things. I imagine and I hope people are in it for the right reasons. So one of my questions has been always, I mean, it's it's changed over the years with the compensation or what people can make. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on being in there altruistically or otherwise. And maybe that's a loaded question of people having ego and power and being in a position where I get to be the angel of saving people or not saving people. I want you to talk a little bit about that. But also, I think there might be a tremendous benefit being a doctor who gets to see, you get to see the heart, you get to see the body, you get, there's such an, there's an element of awe, I would imagine. And I'm curious for you, has it changed in any way the way you look at life, the way you the way you look at the world and, and gratitude when you get to see the nuances and the intricacies of the body and, and being it's almost like a surreal, awe-filled moment, I would imagine, being I'm not talking about what you see on house or ER or anything like that, but this is a real life. It's 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 surreal to be in that position. So talking about being in that position where it is a tremendous opportunity and tremendous honor i think to be in that position and how it affects your view on the world and gratitude and then talking maybe a little bit about the human element of people having egos which is a human thing and people doing it altruistically i know i put a whole bunch of questions wrapped into one on, on some of those things that would be great sure no problem
1: I'll, p- I'll pick it apart a little bit and try to address most of the things that you're talking about um as far as altruism there's a lot that goes into the medical training years and, and hours and really kind of a almost a military way of upbringing within the medical world. And I think that there are a lot of altruistic people and, and really almost all of us have this, this innate desire to do this for the right reason. I think that there are varying this, you know, the fields. You really have to remember that, like, you know, everybody has to go to medical school. But once everybody goes to medical school, there are so many different subspecialties and so many different lifestyle choices and so many different factors that apply to each and every subspecialty and subspecialty. You know, a pediatric neurocognitive physician who's dealing with children with cognitive delay is living a completely different life to the cardiothoracic surgeon or the psychologist or the neurologist, you know, there's, so it's really hard to group everybody together. I do think that people choose to do this for the right reason for the most part. There obviously uh, isn't some sort of uh, financial stability that helps people get through it. I don't know if it's the golden age for the physician in terms of the financial situation. I think that because of all the years of training that you're doing where you're not making what people think of as a doctor's salary, definitely factors into the financial decision. If you just made the decision to go to medical school for financial reasons, you're probably not making the right financial choice. There's that to it. It's a little bit more complicated, obviously, for different specialties and everything's different. So I will say that most people are doing it for the right reason. Some people are doing it for the you know the honor that's associated with the physician name. I don't know if that'll change, it may, get, it may change for the good. With the COVID era, people are really recognizing how much healthcare workers put themselves on the line and sacrifice not just time, really all of uh, even their lives are walking towards the virus while everybody's staying home rightfully so to help flatten the curve. These people are actually putting themselves in harm's way to do the right thing. And I actually wanna plug not just physicians, but nurses. I actually can't, let me just say this. I don't wanna just plug physicians and healthcare workers, but really everybody, including the custodial staff, nursing, physical therapy, occupational therapy, the people in the food that, you know, are helping make food in the hospital. This, you know, without every cog in the wheel that makes a hospital run, we would not be able to do our jobs and they wouldn't be able to do their jobs. And again, all these people are walking towards the virus and really putting themselves on the line. So there is that element of altruism. There is that element of feeling good about yourself because of the profession that you chose. And for me, it's kind of like my identity. I think of myself as a cardiologist, a physician. It's part of like who I think I am when I look in the mirror. And that is something that comes as a tremendous privilege. And it's something that you have to live up to. You didn't just earn it. It's not something that you could just earn by taking a bunch of tests. You have to really live and breathe it. And you're helping patients get through, you know, really uh, traumatic times and really getting them through life altering experiences, sometimes where they come out healthy and happy and breathing a sigh of relief. And sometimes where, you know, you cath a patient, you do the procedure that we do as an interventional cardiologist, you diagnose coronary artery disease, they came in with some chest pain and now you're giving them the news that they're going to need quadruple bypass and setting them up for the success of the next step. Or sometimes it's saying, wow, uh, your valvular disease has gotten so bad that we're really not able to take care of it at this time, given that you've had five valve replacements already. And really it's time to focus on being comfortable and taking people through those things is an absolute privilege, something that propels me on my day to day. And that's what kind of motivates me to go to work. Does that, does that answer the bulk of those questions?
0: That answer, that answers a bunch of the questions. How about the being in a position of awe and gratitude and those types of things? Hey everybody, Shmuel here. This concludes part one of this episode. If you're still here, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you're enjoying it. So please, by all means, move on to part two of this at your convenience. And again, subscribe, rate, review etc cetera, etc cetera. have a good one